This is episode 10 of the Immunology Podcast, Viral Pathogens with Dr. James Crone. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Jason Goldsmith and Dr. Brenda Rapp. Welcome back to the Immunology Podcast, where we have conversations with immunologists. The Immunology Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. Today we have Dr. James Crow from the Vanderbilt Vaccine Center on the podcast to talk about his research developing new therapeutics and vaccines against a number of viruses, including coronavirus. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights and immunology news coming up, but first... We'd like to remind our listeners about Immunology of Infectious Disease News, a free weekly newsletter brought to you by Stem Cell Science News, summarizing the latest research, news, jobs, and events in infectious diseases. Use Immunology of Infectious Disease News to stay current with the latest COVID-19, HIV, hepatitis, tuberculosis, influenza, and malaria research. Subscribe at immunologyofinfectiousdiseasenews.com. Hey, Brenda, how are you? Hey, Jason, doing great here. Uh, Just, you know, another week, another failed experiment, but I'll get over it. Well, it's 90% failure, right? That's what they say. I don't know. I'm reading all these amazing papers, and it's really hard to come to that conclusion. Well, that's because you don't see all the failure behind it ahead of time, of course. That's the that's the secret here. Yeah, I guess. The iceberg is mostly underwater, isn't it? It is. Well, have you been watching the Olympics at all? Not really, to be honest. I haven't actually gotten to caught much of it either, but it's been interesting seeing how they've been operating and kind of the athletes being in silence because of the pandemic, which is my really terrible segue into the first paper, which, guess what? It's about the Delta variant. Do-do-do. Oh, okay. Yeah. I want to hear all about it. No, it's been quite a bummer here. 85% of new infections in the Netherlands are from the Delta variant. So bring it on. Yep. Well, the great news is this paper is short and to the point, which is what you like. First author is Jamie Lopez Bernal titles Effectiveness of COVID-19 Vaccines Against the B.1.617.2, parentheses, Delta, variant, in New England Journal of Medicine, published July 21st, 2021. It's making, making the rounds on the news, and it's important for us to cover as well. Basically, it's showing that the Pfizer vaccine, the biotechnic, um, works pretty dang well against covid as are the Delta variant, as does the CHADOX1 and COVID vaccine. Um, They work much better with two vaccines shots than one. And uh, the numbers that they come out with are that one dose is usually 30% effective versus 48.7 in the alpha variant, and both doses show an effectivity rate of... uh, 88% 88% for Delta versus 93.7 after both doses. But this is for any symptomology. And so, and then those numbers are for the Pfizer vaccine. And then for the other one, it's about um, 67 with Delta versus 74.5 uh, for the alpha with both shots. So the key thing here is the vaccines work. And this article doesn't discuss it, but other articles have, is that they're almost all equally effective at this point um, against severe disease or hospitalization and death. And that's what matters most. And so this is actually looking at any symptoms at all. And the work comes from England. Um, So I believe that the other vaccine is the adenoviral AstraZeneca. And so they're showing 
get both shots. You will be protected elsewhere. It talks about how you're, in other studies, it talks about you're protected basically 94 plus percent, even against Delta from death or severe disease. And the vaccines work a little less effectively. Excuse me, it's Novavax, yeah, is the other one. Is And that these um, vaccines work a little less well against the Delta variant for any symptoms, but you'll still be fine overall. And so this is where I put my public a health soapbox down on the floor and get on it. And I try to remind people that the goal of the vaccines is not to create sterilizing immunity. This is a respiratory infection that's very hard to do. The goal of the vaccines are to turn this into something much more akin to a common cold or mild flu. And they're doing a fabulous job at that. The promise was never to eliminate it and make sure no one ever got sick again. The goal of the whole project of vaccination was to prevent people from dying or going in the hospital. And that's what we're seeing and it's working. And uh, go team science basically. So get your vaccine. Get your vaccine. Whatever you do, get your vaccine. Yep. And yeah, sorry, it was the AstraZeneca. So AstraZeneca is a little less effective versus the, the um, biotechnic Pfizer with two shots versus one against both. But they're still within the range. And they both lose about the same amount in terms of absolute percent in protection from the alpha to delta. I think this is also consistent with previous research on the other variants. There's also, we've talked about the uh, alpha variant, so the, the B117 from uh, the UK. There's also these, uh, the, is it the gamma? No, the gamma variant is a P1 from Brazil, and the, the, vari the variant for South Africa, there was also some publications that show that, in general, that's the case. The, the mRNA vaccines seem to be extremely good. And the, the AstraZeneca seems to be also not as good to when it comes to uh, antibody titers and things like that. But in general, they all will keep you out of the hospital. So that's great. That's really great to hear. Um, especially now, I think there's also a lot of uh, news about people, you know, getting uh, infected or being uh, COVID positive again after being fully vaccinated. And that generates a lot of uncertainty, right? But I think in general, as you said, this is not sterilizing immunity, but it provides a protection against the worst of the symptoms. And that's why people should still be careful and still wear their masks and such, because you are still potentially transmitting the virus, even fully vaccinated. Yeah, no, I agree. And, you know, people forget that like viruses can mutate in a way that you know, these are the spike proteins that enter the cells, right? And so they can mutate these, the, pro, the viruses can mutate in a way that makes the antibody not bind, but also means they won't bind a cell either. It's a double-edged sword. And so the finding a mutation that is more contagious, but less effective against an antibody, it can happen. We see that a little bit with the Delta variant, but there's only so many ways to escape without hosing yourself if you're a virus. And yeah. it's, in this case, the vaccines target the spike protein, which is a smart approach here. So I know you have a double header feature you're going to do. So I'm going to jump and do my second one before you do a deep dive into one topic on your two papers. Go um, ahead. So we're going to we're going to switch gears a little bit, um, you know, to my other favorite thing besides COVID, which is uh, colitis. So this paper, first author is Lian Gao. It is titled "A Resident Stromal Cell Population Actively Restrains Innate Immune Response in the Propagation Phase of Colitis." pathogenesis in mice. It came out in Science Translational Medicine here on also the 21st of July in 2021. So if you kind of deep dive in colitis, people 
have looked at the role of immune cells, the role of epithelium. We know there's a lot of dysregulation going on, but people sometimes forget about the stromal cells and intestinal epithelial biology and intestinal stem cell biology. We appreciate the stromal cells because they produce a lot of Wnt and other growth factors are necessary for the stem cell niche. But this paper really deep dives into the immune cell mechanisms, which I think is an important consideration people often forget about. So the paper here looks at a stromal cells marked by twist two, and they demonstrate quite convincingly that it suppresses inflammatory M1 macrophage polarization. And it does this um, by through a COX-2 mediated pathway. And so for people at a high level, it's well known that if you take COX inhibitors, COX-1, COX-2, uh, you actually like, so this would be aspirin, ibuprofen, um, in, in any of those, um, Celebrex even, you can actually predispose yourself to colitis, especially in genetically susceptible hosts. So for instance, I have ulcerative colitis. My kids are uh, been banned by their pediatrician and me from ever taking ibuprofen because we don't want it to predispose them to initiating it. Now this is about propagation, not initiation, but the same idea of you could propagate the disease in the setting of an initial transient injury to the gut that in a susceptible host goes awry. So what they found is that in response to microbial invasion, these vimentin positive twist, posit twist two positive cells um, are activated during the propagation phase of injury and become a source of prostaglandin E2. So that's produced by Cox. And this does it in an NF-kappa-B independent pathway through a TLR P38 MAP kinase Cox2 pathway, which they map out with a bunch of Western blots and a bunch of flow and a whole bunch of genetic knockout mice. And they show that if you knock out each of those genes, but not RELA, which is part of NF-kappa-B or TGF-beta-1, um, you have twist-2 cells with enhanced M1 macrophage polarization and granulocyte slash T helper cell 1 slash TH17 infiltration. So essentially what's going on is that in response to injury and inflammation, these stromal cells pump out PGE2, which suppresses uh, M1 macrophage polarization. And they show that this is not due to the macrophages themselves and Cox intrinsic pathways there through tissue specific knockouts, but it's the stromal cells acting on the immune cells here. And so that's why this paper made it in nature translate or science translational medicine is because they really mapped out this pathway. They also did a good job showing that about 60% of patients with active UC or Crohn's disease, um, there is um, enhancement of these pathways and that COX-2 protein expression was negatively correlated with disease severity. So the more disease you have, the less expression you have, suggesting that if you have, if you're predisposed or Maybe you're just a low COX expressor. There's a bunch of different uh, SNP haplotype, SNP, SNPs in COX that affect its gene expression. So the protein's exactly the same, but like it forms different RNA secondary and tertiary structures. And so, um, oh, it's not secondary structure, tertiary structure. And so it affects ribosomal production of COX. And so that can actually affect how much you get. And so they're showing, and that's from other work I, I've been involved with and know about. Um, but here they show that your amount of protein expression the more protein you have, the less severe disease and vice versa in human patients. And this really deep dives in mechanism and shows that COX from these stromal cells is activating um, the pathways in the macrophages and that the pathway in the stromal cells is TLR4. So protein, you know, bacterial product dependent P38 MAP kinase COX2, and it's not NF-kappa B mediated like other 
effects are. So if you look at Cox pathways and NF, they're usually considered NF-kappa B driven and epithelial cells and are responsible for wound repair. This is more about inflammatory milieu. And there you go. That feels a little bit contra, counterintuitive, right? That in this case, Cox activity in the lot kind of downstream improves the or is negatively related to the uh, severity of, of IBD. Well, I mean, it's always been the case. So Cox has always been something you cannot blockade in IBD. It inhibits wound healing. You know, it, that results in decreased wound healing. And now it's showing that it results in decreased um, macrophage inhibition. I know everyone thinks about it being anti-inflammatory in some spots. It is for acute inflammation, but not for a chronic process where you you have all this other stuff going on. And it also depends on what is being expressed, right? So the co different COX enzymes produce different amounts of different prostaglandins and PGE2 is the important one here and you just can't get rid of it. So even if like in other tissue, other and other prostaglandins are being formed that are pro-inflammatory, you want to shut off. You can't afford to lose PGE2 in the gut ever, basically. This is just another, this is another point uh, for don't ever do that. And, but this is in case, so you said that it's mostly for propagation of IBD, but not necessarily for initiation. Initiation is the epithelial side. So COX inhibition causes gut bleeding due to decreased wound repair. And that's a well-known phenomenon. Of, and it's not just in the um, stomach, but you can take too much ibuprofen and end up with like uh, ibuprofen-induced colitis that looks like microscopic colitis or like low-grade UC, your Crohn's. Um, and that's because you're just pounding on the ibuprofen and your gut doesn't heal. And then you also have the inflammation. And when the gut doesn't heal, then you can have the propagation step with that's being shown here. So this shows a whole second parallel reason why you avoid Cox inhibition in the gut. Very interesting. I have to say that I, I was not aware of, of the fact that you cannot take Cox inhibitors uh, in for like if you're suffering from this, from this kind of um, diseases. I had to say, I thought, well, inflammation, you just take, you just take ibuprofen, don't you? Nope. I haven't had anything but Tylenol since I was 19. Tylenol being paracetamol, right? Yep. That's what, yeah. So acetaminophen, uh, which is a COX inhibitor, but it's a COX-3 inhibitor that only works on the CNS and doesn't have any peripheral effects. It's nice to have an MD in the conversation to know all these uh, details. Extra school means more fun. I'm sure you had a lot of fun. So uh, talking about fun, uh, let's talk about T cells. As you mentioned, I have a two back-to-back -back publications from Nature that I thought was fun to discuss them uh, together because they're both trying to uh, look into similar questions about the role of T cells in tumors and in the anti-tumoral response. So these two papers, uh, as I mentioned, uh, published in Nature, uh, one comes from the lab of Catherine Wu at Dana-Farber uh, in and uh, Harvard, and um, first author uh, Giacomo Oliveira, and then uh, the second paper comes from the lab of Kevin Smith from John Hopkins, and first authors Justina Kaushi and Jiajia Shang, and I'm gonna kind of go through them introduce you to them uh, separately and then discuss some of the things that they have in common. I think it was really nice to uh, read them together. So the first paper from the lab of, of Catherine Wu uh, 
is titled Phenotype Specificity and Avidity of Anti-Tumor CD8 T-cells in Melanoma. And in this paper, what they do, or in this study, what they do is they look into specimens from uh, patients with uh, late-stage melanoma, stage 3, stage 4, and they do a battery of analyses. I mean, the not the usual nowadays, single-cell RNA-seq, DCR-seq, and they also do site-seq, which I think is really nice, uh, in which you use barcoded antibodies to also look into protein expression in the cell. So you usually look at the, uh, the expression of, of markers, uh, which sometimes gives you a lot of information because often the expression of the RNA does not necessarily linearly relate to the expression of the protein on the surface of the cell. And they look into the CD8 T cells of these of these uh, specimens, and well, they they evaluate their phenotype and they define different clusters of cells. And of course, they can differentiate certain uh, clusters that are more effector memory, some of their more kind of uh, central memory, they use kind of previously described markers to generate these clusters. And they also find cells that are associated with terminal, terminal, uh, sorry, terminal exhaustion, they express high levels of, of uh, inhibitory molecules like 3, CD39, TIM3, PD1. And they also find some of what they call the progenitor exhausted cells that are cells that are expressing the, the uh, TCF7 slash 1, uh, this uh, transcription factor associated with stemness uh, of CD8 cells, and express other, other markers that also uh, make up a cluster of cells that are thought to have a higher uh, potential to, to generate new cells and to maintain a cell population. And what they look what I think is very cool about this paper is that they look into the DCR uh, distribution, and of course they find that there are certain clones that are expanded, uh, and they, are, they represent more of uh, of the total TCRs in the in this uh, tumors, and they find that within this expanded clones, not all of them are tumor specific, and this is something that we already known for 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 a long time. I think it's quite known that a lot of the T cells that are in the tumor are not necessarily recognizing anything. There's a lot of bystander cells, and there's a lot of cells that are activated and they have an effector phenotype, but they're actually not against. They're not specific against the tumor. They're specific against things such as viral antigens, that of course we have are we're expressing in our in our bodies some antigens from viruses such as. Uh, Epstein-Barr virus, which is you know very fairly common uh, against uh, influenza or against other types of viruses that we find and generate TCR responses. And what they find is that within what they what they call exhausted clust uh, clusters, they were the most likely to be tumor specific. And they do this by evaluating the. Uh, they have a very nice um, system in which they they by having the sequence of all these TCRs, they find the TCRs that are indeed expanded, and they clone them and they express them on donor T cells, and then they check their reactivity against the, the melanoma cell lines from the patients, and therefore they can find which of those TCRs are actually uh, specific against the tumor and not against controlled tissues uh, from autologous cells from the patient. And what they see is that they find that those cells that are they define as exhausted are enriched on cells that are actually specific against the tumor. 
Whereas the, the clusters of, of activated or effector cells that are non, they don't, they find as not exhausted, have, they find a lot of TCRs that are actually specific against, for example, viral antigens. So they really kind of might make this difference between uh, TCRs that are recognized in tumor and, and TCRs that are recognized in bystander. And that if you don't know the specificity, you just see that both of them are expanded in the tumor. And so they look into the specificity of this tumor, this, this tumor specific TCRs. They find that many, that some of them can uh, detect neoantigens and some of them detect kind of public tumor associated antigens, or in this case, melanoma associated antigens. And so they go through the painstaking work of deorphanization of these TCRs, finding what the TCRs that they find in, in these tumors are recognizing specifically. And they can actually, they can actually find for about half of the, of the sorry, for about a, a, a fourth of the TCRs that they, they have, they can find what is their specificity and which of them are, which are the, the, the antigens that they are recognizing. And when they look into the, um, the, the, again, they, they show, they show that those that are, um, the, they compare the characteristics of the TCRs between those that are recognizing neoantigens and those that are recognizing melanoma associated antigens. And it's very interesting because they also see that they have different what it avidities, different uh, strength of recognition of their of their tumor of their uh, tumor antigens, and that melanoma associated public antigens are usually associated with TCRs with lower or inter with lower intermediate avidities, whereas neoantigen specific TCRs have really high avidities, and this correlates inversely with the abundance of these antigens on, melan on the melanoma cell lines that they test, and this kind of goes back to the idea that the reason why these melanoma-associated antigens that are technically uh, your own can be recognized is often because they are presented at such high, such high amounts that even TCRs with lower intermediate abilities can actually recognize them and, and, and they, they end, end up being expanded in the tumor, whereas new antigen-specific TCRs can recognize a much lower amount of, of antigen presented on the cell. And this again, reinforces the idea that these are very interesting targets for trying to find TCRs to uh, target specific patient tumors. And, and here's where I also want to go to the other paper that is also published in the same, in the same, um, in the same nature of uh, at the same date. And it's this paper that is called Transcriptional Programs of Neoantigen-Specific TILs in Anti-PD-1-Treated Lung Cancers again from John Hopkins, they look at the similar questions, but in a different way. So again, they want to see what are these T cells doing? What are they recognizing? How can we know, how can we predict whether these, whether a patient will respond to, in this case, PD-1 treatment? So they work with uh, non-small uh, cell lung uh, carcinoma, and they take 20 patients uh, from which nine had uh, clinical responses after PD-1. And again, they also do single cell RNA sequencing, TCR sequencing of the, the TIL. So uh, T-cells from the TIL. They also have some uh, um, healthy tissue of the lung for some of the patients. And they also have a metastasis uh, from one of the patients. 
And similarly to the paper on melanoma, they again can identify clusters of cells within the, the CD8 cells in, the, in these tumors. And they can also see that there are expanded cells that have certain activation markers. And when they, they have a different way of looking into cells and defining the specificities of these of the cells, I think it's also very interesting how they, they look at the same problem as what are the T cells recognizing. And they have a different approach. In your case, they take peripheral blood from the patients and they expand the cells or they activate the cells uh, in the presence of uh, uh, the antigens that they're looking for, they, they do a selection of antigens and they uh, also have a prediction for neoantigens. Uh, they're associated with the mutations in these tumors. And so by activating and, and looking at the proliferation of cells from the peripheral blood in the presence of these antigens, they can find which TCRs are responsive to particular uh, antigens that they predict or they, 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 um, they, they generate the peptides and, and, they, and they can use that for expanding T cells. And by this, by, in this way, they identify cells that are specific against neoantigens. And again, they find that they have a particular transcript, transcriptome, a particular uh, uh, transcriptional program that again is, have a significant upregulation of checkpoint molecules Again, they find the same as the other papers, PD-1, TIM-3, TIGIT. And again, one of the molecules that seems to really pop up here is CD39 as a molecule that's most particularly expressed on cells that are tumor-specific and not on, by, not on bystander cells. They also look into bystander cells that are, for example, viral-specific. Uh, and, and in the same way, they see that the uh, transcriptional programs are quite different between cells that are tumor-specific and cells that are virus-specific. And I think this, uh, together, these two papers really look into how can we know if we have a tumor or we have, we do all this, we, we find all these cells and we, we see their phenotype, can we say this TCR or this amount of cells will recognize a tumor and these are just bystanders that are just kind of on the way, in, in the way. And just to finish, another conclusion that kind of both papers take, and I really recommend people uh, to read them if, if, if they're interested in this, is that the presence within the tumor-specific population and not within the whole, the til the tils as a whole, all CD8 cells, the presence of T cells that are tumor-specific that have an exhausted phenotype is associated with uh, low in the case of the melanoma is associated with patients that have uh, you know have a, a very poor uh, uh, response. They have the one patient that responds to PD1 treatment in their cohort is the one patient that has tumor specific TCRs on cells that are not exhibiting a exhausted phenotype. And in the case of the non-small cell lung cancer, is the same. They have the association of T cell dysfunctional uh, signatures on TCR on T cells that have TCR specific against tumors is the main kind of marker for failure of treatment. And you don't see that this signal gets lost if you look at the whole CD8 compartment. It only shows up if you're looking into T cells that are specific against the tumor. 
Uh, I guess it's not particularly makes a lot of sense when you think about it, but it's nice to see how they can really show with with, with the data from this from this uh, clinical trials. I think that's really interesting, and it, it does make a lot of sense. I'm wondering also treatment wise, if you could then create like a bi-specific antibody where you target these cells with a one antibody arm, and then another one's a PD8 PD1 inhibitor or something else. And then you could turn off their exhausted state and then recover them as useful CD8 cells. Yeah, the thing is that I think, uh, and there's just a paper that came out like yesterday, uh, that I think this idea that these cells are kind of done for, these exhausted cells, they have a lot of epigenetic scarring, a lot of epigenetic uh, and kind of more deep changes in their in their in their in their genetic in the transcription uh, profiles that it just makes them really hard. They're, they're not really savaged. And it's better to have cells that never became exhausted and using those for, uh, for, for driving an immune response. And I think what it, in the case of, um, of kind of genetic engineering of T cells, it's actually, it's really cool because then it really supports the idea that it's better to take those TCRs that you know work and put them into fresh cells by by uh, genetic, genetically modifying the cells, rather than trying to get this uh, exhausted cells to recover. Yeah, then maybe you just give them sweet, sweet release, sweet apoptotic rest. Yeah, just let them go. But it's, it's really cool, and this these two publications have so much. They they did so much data, and they so much work finding. The, the specificities of these TCRs is still, we don't have really true through high put, um, um, high throughput, sorry, uh, methods. Uh, they, they actually are really doing a lot of like manual cloning and, and you know, putting each TCR on one, on one uh, well, and they're testing like 500 TCRs. Oh. So kudos to these people. It's, it's a lot of work. It's, it's really hard to, it's a lot of work to find what are the T cells recognizing specifically. Well, just imagine how many of their experiments then had failed at this point to get there. Yeah, a lot. I exactly. hope. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to be speaking with Dr. James Crow in just a moment. But before we get to that, explore scientific resources for your immunology research at the Stem Cell Technologies Immunology Learning Center. Choose from different research areas and find expert interviews, technical tips, educational webinars, instructional videos, and much more. Visit stemcell.com slash immunology hyphen research. Hi, everyone. Uh, today, we're going to be talking to Dr. James Crow from the Vanderbilt Vaccine Center. He's also a professor of pediatrics and pathology, microbiology, and immunology at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville, Tennessee, and also founder of a spin-off company, ID Biologics. And he's joining us today to talk about the research of his lab, which uh, focuses on the viral immunology and antibody sciences and uses adaptive immune responses to various viral pathogens to harness them and develop new therapeutics and vaccines. Dr. Krauss, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's fun to be here. Thank you for being here. So I'll start first. I have, I have a question we can just dive in. I, I know you work on antibodies and viruses in this past, you know, 18 months or so has been a little bit different. Before we deep dive into techniques and everything, I guess the high level question is, what has this last year and a half been like for you, especially given 
you know, how the pace of research normally operates versus the pace of research when a pandemic pops up? Well, it has been an unusual year, obviously. We uh, are not strangers to working fast. In fact, we typically are doing 10 or 12 antibody discovery programs all the time in our lab. So there's a lot going on and people are trying to push to the limits. Uh, and in fact, we were working on speeding up the process already. We had a large grant from the US uh, agency DARPA. And the whole point of the grant was to go as fast as possible. So we had done a simulation the year before simulating a Zika outbreak. And we we did a whole discovery program in 78 days. And we thought we thought that was pretty good. We thought that was pretty swanky. We were preparing to do a second simulation in January 2020 when we interact with DARPA and we saw SARS-CoV-2 was hitting the shores of the United States in the middle of January. We pivoted and launched a real antibody discovery program to go as fast as possible for SARS-CoV-2. And we were completely unprepared. There were no reagents. There were no donors. It just wasn't anything. But uh, we just said, we have to do this. Ready, set, go. And so we had never launched a program with nothing in our hand, just an idea. Um, and uh, so that was quite unusual. And of course, we were all on lockdown ourselves. Um, I actually was in Italy uh, during the, the beginning of this, trying to do a sabbatical, but had to abandon the country on the last day. I got the last flight out to the United States. I, it was very chaotic, actually, what happened. But in the end, it turned out okay. I think our listeners would really like to hear more about your how do you do this antibody discovery programs? You have a very interesting kind of research uh, plan that you like. It's called Ahead Hundred, in which you're looking at various, basically targeting all of these viral diseases with monoclonal antibodies. Can you tell us more about that program and how then you ended up uh, being awarded one of these DARPA grants to to continue this re research? Right. Well, I'm originally a pediatrician, a pediatric infectious disease specialist. And when I got into this field in the early 1990s, we were focusing on the major causes of hospitalization of children, respiratory viruses, RSV, things like that. Um, and then in the late 90s, the United States and the, and the Soviets uh, agreed to autoclade the last stocks of smallpox from the earth. Uh, and yet there was a lot of angst at that time that there was not enough known about immunity to smallpox. And what if one side or the other didn't fulfill their promise to get rid of the virus, continued research. And smallpox had been prepared for biowarfare, uh, at least by one of the sides, I know. So I sort of pivoted because uh, the Clinton administration uh, flushed a lot of money into smallpox research all of a sudden. And I thought that was intriguing. So we started to make antibodies to smallpox. And when I learned about the whole world of uh, emerging agents, bioterrorist agents, agents for biowarfare, it just was interesting to me. So we launched on having this sort of side gig. You know, we're working on pathogens for little kids, but hey, these, uh, these other pathogens are interesting. Eventually, this became my career. We work on emerging infections principally. And uh, once we started going, we said, well, one or two, well, not just pox viruses, why don't we work on flaviviruses? And eventually said, why don't we just work on all the viruses that uh, threaten mankind? And that, that's how it evolved into a program where we're, we're actually trying to make antibodies for all of the viruses that have epidemic or pandemic potential.
So presumably, you know, an advantage of the antibodies is if you can make them, you can get them out quickly. And especially if you have a platform that can be rapidly adopted. Now that there's also this mRNA vaccine platform that is new, you know, no more injecting chicken embryos and, you know, trying to cook something up for a few years. How do you guys, how do you envision the complementary approaches hitting the market? Because like right now we're seeing with, with COVID, we have vaccines and monoclonal antibodies. The, you know, the former president got, you know, the antibodies first because there was no vaccine, which is a really, I think, a good example of one scenario. And now people are getting mostly the vaccine and not the antibodies. So just your thoughts on where, you know, old days was very clear where this technology fit in because, you know, vaccines was, you know, five, 10 years to get anywhere. And now that's not true. And so how do you how do you envision this? Do you envision like the, the antibodies as, you know, the emergency troops coming out to stabilize until you get the vaccines going and then used for, like, say, really sick people thereafter? Right. Well, there's basically three or four things you can do for infections. The, you know, the first is just public health measures, distancing, masking, and all that. So then if you think about medical countermeasures, there's antiviral drugs, usually small molecules, maybe a pill that you take or an IV infusion. They're typically going to be too late. They're not used for prevention. And when you're really sick, it's actually too late to even treat. So they, they have not, uh, small molecules have not really contributed much here. Um, Vaccines are usually used only for prevention. Sometimes if you get bit by a rabid dog, you might get a vaccine immediately as part of what's called post-exposure prophylaxis, but usually vaccines are only preventative. Antibodies are really interesting because they're a flexible technology. They can be used for prevention. They, in fact, been used since the late 1800s for prevention and treatment, originally horse sera, and then human polyclonal convalescent plasma, and now monoclonal antibodies, but they can also be used for post-exposure prophylaxis, treatment of mild disease, or treatment of severe disease. So I think antibodies have the capability to um, work essentially as vaccines or as treatments, and that's why they're, they're really fascinating and have a lot of potential. Um, in the current outbreak, they were, it was sort of a beta test of scaling antibodies for the population and to, if we're honest, it, the potential was not fulfilled, really. So the antibodies were discovered quickly, but the manufacturing lagged. Um, scaling up the product was difficult. Uh, the product was delivered by intravenous infusion mostly, and there's not enough infusion centers to deliver um, the drug. So really, the antibodies were underused in the current epidemic. But we think in the future, now that we've learned some lessons, um, having a single injection is going to be great. And this is where uh, mRNA might play a role. Uh, we have done a first-in-man RNA uh, test with uh, Moderna, and you're familiar with Moderna because of their vaccine work. But in uh, 2019, we did a clinical trial of an antibody we discovered here at Vanderbilt. Uh, Moderna prepared the antibody genes as an mRNA in lipid nanoparticles and injected humans and achieved antibody expression from an mRNA. So it's been done uh, one time in the clinic, and that was sort of a proof of principle, but it was not ready yet for uh, this pandemic. So I think a lot of things we beta tested, you know, in the last couple of years, they need to be fully fleshed out. And I predict in the next pandemic, antibodies are going to play a much bigger role because now we know what we're doing. You definitely know what you're doing, especially when we look at the platforms that you use to to really scan 
antibodies from convalescent patients for, for the, all these diseases. It's really uh, incredible the kind of uh, throughput that your platforms have. Do you want to maybe talk a little bit about the systems that you use in order to very quickly and simultaneously uh, scan several different antibody clones uh, for, for your therapeutic one and the one that you want to continue using? Yes, well, our platforms have evolved over time, and we have about a dozen different ways now to make human monoclonal antibodies. We started mostly uh, by developing a technique for human hybridoma formation. So we would take human B cells and fuse them to a cancer cell, a myeloma cell in the lab, and that made a uh, an immortal cell that would make that individual antibody. And we've made thousands of antibodies that way for many viruses. Um, but that process takes about four months. You know, and if you're not in a hurry, that's quite a good good time pace. But for something like COVID, we needed um, a process that would go much faster than that. So we've shifted mostly uh, to technologies based on single cell uh, RNA seq. So somehow we we collect the antigen specific B cells from blood, or it can be bone marrow, uh, it could be a tissue. Uh, it could be tonsils, anything like that, but it's typically blood. We take the antigen-specific B cells out, and we put one cell per well into some kind of device. We've used 10x genomics. Uh, we've used Berkeley lights in the pandemic, uh, the beacon instrument. So these microfluidic devices can put a single cell in a well, and you can get the antibody genes back out. And that's how you go fast. So for COVID, uh, with the Berkeley lights device, we went from blood sample to delivering the antibody sequences to our partner AstraZeneca in 25 days. And we literally isolated 800 antibodies from a single sample uh, in that process and down-selected 800 to a few. So the, the speed with which we can use single-cell RNA-seq and synthetic genomics by synthesizing the DNA copies, we usually do this with twist at high throughput. Um, so synthetic genomics, single-cell technologies, RNA-seq, uh, informatics, all these technologies that grew out of Human Genome Project and other recent pushes, uh, we're melding them together into hybrid workflows where we can go really fast. So I wanted to deep dive on that with AstraZeneca. You mentioned early that in, in the, earlier in the chat that you know you didn't have any samples or anything to start with this time, which is different than normal. How did you go about that? As much as you can disclose, oh God, it's a pandemic. For you to do your technology, it sounds like you need cells from people who've been exposed, because that's how you can start isolating sequences of antibodies that work. So how did you go about that in the middle of a pandemic with all the chaos and ambiguity, trying to find samples when we barely knew it was here in January to then get to AstraZeneca or any partner you would have for anything? How, how, how did you do it? And I guess, how would you want it to be done going forward, uh, given there will be another pandemic or another scenario of something coming up at some point in our lives? Yeah, this is um, part of just our experience and expertise. So um, COVID was an example, but we do this routinely. We see something in the news or on ProMed listserv, and we see there's a single case of infection in a country on the other side of the world, and we'll do whatever it takes to identify the providers or the person and offer them enrollment into our study. And you'd be surprised, you know, Virtually every survivor of these diseases, when they hear about what they're doing, wants to participate uh, so that other people don't have to go through what they just experienced. 
So we've learned how to do this all over the world. We have um, worked through a lot of the complicated uh, institutional review board or ethical considerations. Uh, if it's in another country, uh, we have to work with the Department of State because the United States has certain relationships with other countries. There are many lawyers involved. Uh, there's shipping, there's biosafety, there's just so many headaches. But we've done this dozens of times and we we sort of learn what are all the ditches you can fall in along the way. And we try to be proactive about solving all those things. So in the case of COVID, um, we actually studied the first known case in the United States. So um, an individual walked into an urgent care in the Seattle area, and we found out about that within about a day. And uh, I just am fairly well connected in the infectious diseases community. Within a day, I was talking to the providers, you know, at the facility. Um, it was fascinating, actually, the process because of the the sample. You know, we got the first survivor, uh, gave a sample. The sample became available on a Saturday night, um, which was in Seattle, and we're in Nashville, and uh, that was somewhat inconvenient. But I, we just had to move forward. So. In this case, I'm in Nashville, Tennessee, and our CEO of our medical center, I just called him up and I said, I need some help right now. Uh, I think that FedEx is also a Tennessee company there in Memphis. There must be a CEO. You're a CEO. You people must know each other. And he said, actually, yes, I do. I have a board member who's good friends with you know, the CEO and lives on his street or, or something like that. And it was an immediate personal connection. And the CEO of FedEx made this happen for us. So they sent, you know, somebody in Seattle by hand to pick up the sample, put it on a plane, flew to Memphis. FedEx does not deliver on Sunday morning. I don't know if you ever thought about that, but none of the express couriers do that. So they had one of the staff members got in a Lincoln Town car and drove from Memphis to my home in Nashville, Tennessee on a Sunday morning at my house, handed me the first specimen, and I walked it to work, you know. So it's that kind of thing. We do whatever it takes. Uh, so in that particular case, you know, we were the first people making antibodies to COVID uh, in the United States with the first sample from the first survivor. And, you know, on and on. There were only, even into late February, there were only a dozen known cases in North America. And around these cases, as you said, there's always chaos and uh, it's just really hard to fight through there. And I, I think we studied four of the first 15 cases, you know, and three of us spent probably 80 hours a week trying to make those contacts. So it's it's challenging, and uh, but also, you know, interesting, fun. Um, it's fun to interact with the donors. Some of, For COVID, one of the highly motivated donors flew in to Nashville from another state, gave three samples, like three different blood draws as we were live fire studying the sample um, and then flew out 12 hours later. I mean, just really committed donors. I'm very grateful to people like that. So my really quick follow-up is uh, that is amazing heroics. And thank you to this, your CEO and the CEO of FedEx. Is there any effort to move it past that to some sort of system where it's, you know, doesn't require you know, friends of friends and CEOs calling each other at 3 a.m. or whatever it is to get it done. I mean, obviously you heard about a case and it went through, but from someone on the other end as a provider and, you know, the foot soldier in this, that's like, oh my God, what if they didn't know the CEO of FedEx in this one scenario? And there's all these 
places in the chain where it could break. Is there an effort, do you know, nationally or internationally to make a pipeline for this type of thing that's more uh, more streamlined? Yeah, people want that. And actually it did happen in COVID. So very soon after that, lots of people said, hey, I would like blood from that person. And um, the United States government got involved and that was a little bit of a flail because the responsibility for this activity is not located in a single agency. So agencies were not sure who should be involved. Eventually, one of the groups got involved and then it became impossible to get samples, you know, if you were where I'm sitting. And so in my experience was it slowed it down and made it bureaucratic and it made it much more complicated. So I think, um, sure, we could have some organized sample collection and distribution systems, but in the moment, I think you're better off letting, um, you know, the people who know how to do this move as fast as they can. I, I, I don't think that, for instance, a, a national government could have moved as fast as I just described to you. It's not possible. So I think there needs to be some flexibility in these, you know, to have organized efforts uh, but also allow, you know, the leading people who do this professionally all day long, let them operate. You know. The inevitable balancing uh, act that uh, Americans like to argue about daily. Yeah. So even in the, uh, if you look at how the government contracts things, sometimes uh, in this space, they will move monies to a private party to do the, the, the money distribution. So there's a thing called other transaction authority where the government can move money to a company who then awards and manages the money to a third party to get the job done as fast as possible. So, that, I mean, it's just in parallel, another resource, which is the finances. Um, and, and I'm not being critical of government people. I mean, they they have structures and rules and laws to follow, and and, and they're being creative to, to accomplish these sorts of arrangements anyway. So I, I think everybody wants it to happen, uh, but sometimes... If you need things immediately, uh, the private sector is, is sometimes better positioned to do that. And just from this research, there's actually two an monoclonal antibodies that are going now into phase three clinical trials, right? With AstraZeneca for, for treatment. Do you think uh, there's more space in the in kind of the, the health system for another set of antibodies? Are your antibodies different in any way from the ones that are already in the market? Right. There's been several major uh, efforts to push antibodies through. So the, the Abcellera Lilly group uh, pushed, you know, an antibody out and then a cocktail. That, an that antibody has lost EUA authorization because the variants evade those antibodies. The Regeneron cocktail um, it's very impressive how fast they moved and how effective that's been. They've had some difficulties in distribution because of the IV um, route, but uh, it's been a good product and uh, for the most part covers variants. At least one of the antibodies does well. Our antibodies went to AstraZeneca. They're in six phase three trials right now, prevention, post-exposure prophylaxis, mild treatment, severe treatment, various places around the world. Um, several of those trials are fully enrolled. We think there's a lot of potential for the ones that we've uh, worked on with them. Number one, their route of administration is intramuscular. So you could just get a shot and be on your way and not have to hang out for a couple hours at an infusion center. 
Um, number two, they made their antibody with their long acting antibody technology, which is a mutation of the FC. And the FC region of an antibody interacts with the neonatal FC receptor or FCRN. And that determines the typical three week half life of an antibody. But with the, um, with the AstraZeneca mutations, which are called YTE, these antibodies uh, persist with a half-life of 90 to 100 and something days. So one could envision accomplishing a year's worth of protection from a single IM injection, which is extraordinary. And in fact, might be more potent and durable than the vaccines we're using, you know. So we're pretty optimistic that this prevention approach with long-acting antibodies will fulfill a need for those who choose not to get vaccine um, or want a different approach. And a slightly different topic uh, re related to your old, the amount of antibodies that you've been evaluating and kind of discovering and identifying. What has been your experience with using non-neutralizing antibodies that inhibit viral replication and have therapeutic value, but sometimes certain um, platforms such as viral pseudotyping might, might miss them? But you have a couple of examples of successful non-neutralizing antibodies. Uh, do you think um, there's a lot lost when people are looking into pseudotype uh, virus for these assays? Well, there's a, a couple topics that you, you raise that are interesting. One is um, neutralizing versus non-neutralizing antibodies. So neutralization is an in vitro phenomenon. It's the result of an assay. And we have to be careful about those assays because there are cell types um, that we use. So for instance, for the COVID studies, many of us in the field were using Vero cells, but Vero cells don't really have human ACE2, the receptor on them. So when you're studying neutralization in a Vero cell, you're not studying what happens in a human airway cell that has human ACE2 and Tempras2 and, and, and various factors. So it's sort of, what are you measuring? So the cell substrate's important um, and um, other factors. But you know, having said that, my own strong intellectual bias is neutralizing antibodies tend to be the strongest correlates of protection against viruses, you know. So uh, if you have a very potent antibody, something that's, say, less than 10 nanograms per ml IC50, the likelihood that that's going to work in vivo is very high. If you have a non-neutralizing antibody, some of those antibodies will work by what are really non-canonical methods. They're not blocking attachment. Uh, they're not blocking fusion. They're doing something to the cells or the particle that's not measured in a neutralizing assay. And, and I personally, I'm less of a fan of depending on such activities. Now, if you have a neutralizing antibody that also has that type of activity, whether it's FC mediated through a receptor or complement or inducing signaling or uh, killing cells with, in, in, uh, in collaboration with macrophages or neutrophils or NK cells, all the better. But I don't personally like the idea of only depending on these non-canonical, non-neutralizing um, activities for several reasons. One, it's hard to follow those. If you go to the FDA and say, my test for this is, it's just hard to measure those things. Whereas neutralization, very straightforward. Um, and also it's just unproven at scale. Neutralizing antibodies often are 
are uh, validated correlates of immunity, and there's a quantitative threshold that you can establish. Whereas in these other activities, it's it's harder to think about what's going to be the quantitative threshold for that activity. So I'm not saying it wouldn't work. I'm just saying my preference is to use a highly potent antibody. That's a good philosophy there. So I guess the question I wanted to steer to now in a related note is you've also moved on to biotech and have a, a spinoff company. I come from the biotech world these days as well. So I was wondering if you wanted to talk about that also kind of partially from the academic perspective, how that organically grew, what you've learned from your time there, how it compares to academia even, or any other thoughts you have on it. Because we, we have a pretty diverse set of listeners, some, you know, grad students, postdocs, professors, kind of the whole range. And so <clears throat> biotech is often a path that people hear about, but don't really think about actively in terms of things that they can do with their careers or lives? Right. Well, it's been an experiment for me. It's been really interesting. So um, we started the company a few years ago, and the idea was to take antibodies that were being discovered in our academic lab and get them into people. That was my main motivation. We do license our antibodies from our technology transfer office out to companies. They'll do options and licenses, and we try to promote the, the development of antibodies because our laboratory doesn't have good manufacturing practice facilities, you know, process facilities. We don't even have GLP labs. So we need for-profit companies if we're going to help people, which is sort of a, a vague goal, but a lot of people who go into science and medicine, that's one of the primary motivators. So we wanted to not only be doing abstract art, in our ad, you know, in our academic lab, which we love doing, but we wanted to help people. So the company was, um, in my mind, a way to expedite moving things from the academic lab into at least phase one trials. In reality, doing a startup is pretty challenging um, because you're constantly trying to uh, raise money and engagement with the community. Uh, and I, to be honest, the hardest thing I've found is uh, in an academic lab, I can say, wow, I just, and this is true, we just uh, isolated 120,000 human monoclonal antibodies for Ebola virus from a single sample. It's amazing. We did it really fast. And they have a wide variety of activities. It's really interesting. I could talk to you about this for hours. And people think that's great. But in a, in a startup um, environment, you may be talking to uh, someone with money, a venture capitalist, and they say, that's great. You got 120,000 do you have a selected single drug that you think is going to work? And why is it going to work? Tell me which one. And sometimes that's actually hard to do to boil the whole program down to, I believe that this particular entity, this one antibody will solve a medical problem that's worth people putting millions of dollars in. And um, it's just very difficult, actually, because you, you have to have confidence in the particular molecule, and there's a high risk in any one molecule that it may or may not work. Whereas in an academic portfolio, I can say some of these definitely would work if we developed them all, but you can't do that. You have to boil it down to a very narrow focus. Um, I found that challenging. And uh, there's just a whole other vocabulary uh, in a startup environment having to do with um, process, focus, uh, quarterly goals. I mean, it, you know, in an academic environment, you get a five-year grant. In a startup, if you hadn't made progress, I, we, we have calls every Friday around the scientific process, you know, progress in our 
company. And if you come back a week later and you say, we didn't make progress, it's just kind of a disaster. <laughs> uh, whereas in an academic lab, you know, it, it just doesn't have quite that intensity of pace. Uh, so there's a lot of differences. Um, and uh, I have not left my day job to uh, go to the company, which is mostly in the Bay Area. Um, I'm sure they would like me to, and I, in some ways I would like to, but I, I just haven't made the commitment to leave the academic, you know, environment. And in fact, our, our academic lab looks like a biotech. We have, you know, $150 million of extramural support. We've got robots. We've got very senior people. So the, the magnitude of my academic lab is larger than most startups. So it's, you know, it's just uh, hard to decide what to do. It's interesting. You mentioned GMP and GLP. So for those who don't know, that stands for good manufacturing and good lab manufacturing practices and good laboratory practices. And those are specific regulations that are govern pharmaceutical manufacturing that uh, you have to adhere to. So I, I came from Penn before I switched to biotech. And uh, Penn has a GMP facility on site for all of its CAR T cell therapies and then some GLP labs as well. Have you guys thought about like carving out space and doing that? So you almost, you said you have this $150 million of support and all this other stuff going on. You could theoretically uh, carve out, you know, some of that to even get through preclinical. So it could be GLP, GMP is harder, but you could have a GLP set up so that then you could immediately, you know, yeah. take it to that next step. Well, we have taken responsibility for doing GLP and GMP activities, but we're doing it through contractors, you know, contract development manufacturing organizations, CDMOs or CROs. And and actually, these people do it full time all the time. They're really efficient at it. And we just raise money and give them the money. And, and so um, we are currently making several antibodies uh, for clinical trials ourselves, and we intend to file the IND at Vanderbilt. I, I won't be involved in the trials, but they'll be done in our clinical trials group here. Um, so we're doing it, we're just not building it. So it's sort of, you have this make or buy decision, even in a small company, you have that. Are we gonna make it ourselves or are we just gonna buy the services? So we're buying contract services right now. I would say one thing we are doing that I think is critical for academics to understand, and I've learned the hard way, is if you want to partner with a company to develop your molecule, you need to be the best partner possible. So for instance, if we made 100 antibodies, and then we boiled down to one, and we said, this is the Ebola antibody, we love it, it's very potent, and it works great in animals, they might look at it and say, that's going to be hard to manufacture, because it's got some free cysteines, and it's got a lot of sequence liabilities, that look like when we make this at five grams per liter, it's not gonna fly. What else you got? <laughs> and then we're kind of disappointed. We're like, that's the one we love. And they say, we don't like it, we don't want it. Uh, why don't you start over? And so having walked through that process several times, we have been learning about the manufacturing process, the qualification, the, um, the CMC process and toxicity testing and all the the hoops that companies have to jump through before they could even do a phase one trial. And there are computational and laboratory techniques they use to assess the liabilities of molecules. And we started conducting those procedures in our academic lab during the discovery process. So if we have a thousand antibodies, instead of only down selecting on potency, we also are starting to look at 
what's called developability or manufacturability. So we're deciding ourselves, wow, that antibody, although we love it, uh, is going to have problems in manufacturing, and we're, we're down-selecting away from that. And, and so we're making ourselves a better partner for companies so that when we hand them a panel of antibodies to consider, we can say we've already thought through all of your problems, and these antibodies should you know, should solve those the profile that you're looking for. Um, so I, I think that's the part of the process that we really are internalizing on-site. We're learning how to do um, aggregation, deamidation, oxidation, and then the various things that are, they're not sexy from a, an academic standpoint, but if you really want to get the job done, you, you need to you need to solve that problem. There's, there's a lot of practicality to biotech. I've learned in my time in there as well that, you know, academia, I think, I think and if this message was more related to academia broadly, when people are like, I have this great idea for a drug, things would get done faster. But I think there's a almost a lack of knowledge transfer in that domain that I'd love to see improved over time, just because design right. it right from the first step, you know? Right. We're actually trying to address this in our um, educational program. So most of my students now are doing internships for three months in a biotech, you know, most of them in a, in an antibody biotech company. Um, and it's very helpful to them. They come back and they're all fired up with ideas about how things really work. Um, and you know, we, we gained from that. So it was originally part of a training grant and only select people. We made them do it. And it was sort of like, oh, we're, they were making them go away for three months and now they all want to do it. Um, so, uh, it's been an interesting process. And, uh, the other transformation that's happening once they go to a company for an internship during their PhD, the vast majority of my recent students have skipped postdocs and they go right into biotech and, uh, many of them are looking at six-figure salaries right out of their PhD um, to do the actual work of making antibodies for real. And I, and I have some, you know, ambivalences about sort of the Malcolm Gladwell 10,000-hour idea that he popularized, uh, you know, from Eric's, um, Eric Anders. And, um, you know, the more experience you have, probably the better scientists you're going to be. But it's an interesting trend that I'm commenting on that yeah. industry knowledge during acquiring industry knowledge during graduate studies may enable people to enter enter industry, you know, quicker and better. 10,000 hours thing's interesting because I actually think it was an idea without any data to back up the specific number, which is always an interesting uh, propagation of, you know, that 10,000 hours thing. I think it's a very useful concept, yeah. right? Like a set amount of time is needed for expertise. But yeah. that number was, I think, made up. Well, I've been obsessed with this idea. Actually, there is research. Most of it was done on uh, things like, um, well, there, there's a term called kind environments versus wicked environments. So if you do the same thing over and over and it's very predictable, then the 10,000 hours is a pretty much a threshold. So violin, learning how to play the violin, or tennis. Tennis was another environment where this was looked at. Um, and it's pretty clear if you put in the time, you know, you have the talent and the time, those things converge. And the observation is like, if you look at a, a, resi a medical residency, uh, three-year residency at 80 hours a week, it works out about right. Um, <laughs> graduate schools, probably, I don't know, you know, 60 hours a week for five years. It, the the numbers kind of work out. Yeah, Actually, I, I think residency is 5,000 hours a year, roughly. Well, it's it's legally limited now to 80, 
80 hours a week for 50 weeks, which is 4,000, I guess. Although, you know, sometimes I go home and write their notes illegally. I, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of hours involved in residency. <laughs> I guess we could be talking about this for 10,000 hours. But, exactly. <laughs> but it's been really interesting to, to, to hear more about the potential of antibody therapies and therapeutics and the way that you at, at Vanderbilt are developing these platforms is, is fascinating. And I think that there's, yeah, I hope, I hope we get a lot more therapeutics out of this kind of research. Uh, I think that uh, for now, I think this conversation has come to an end, but we would like to uh, give our listeners a chance to hear more about yourself. And so there's a question that we asked at the end. And so we would like to know from you, if you were not a scientist, what would you be? Well, I've been uh, fascinated with visual arts for a long, long time. And so I, I wish I had a career, uh, I don't know exactly, I, you know, doing a PhD in um, art. Uh, I'm, I'm interested in art of the African diaspora in the new world, um, the creativity that um, indigenous populations bring to express themselves through uh, creative objects and, um, you know, the intersection of cultural, cultural anthropology and art. And, and this all comes back to sort of visual things. I'm very visually oriented. Um, uh, I'm, I'm fascinated with untrained art, actually. My, my wife and I have collected a lot of uh, art made by people who are not trained as artists. Um, and I'm just fascinated with that. So I, I sort of wish I was a curator or art historian or something like that working in the art field. I don't know if they like their jobs, but it looks good to me from the outside. That is an interesting answer, and one I don't think I was going to guess or anticipate. So, uh, but it kind of makes sense. Antibodies are a very visually mapped thing as well. So, you know, definitely. I mean, antibodies—they um, all look the same, actually. If you if you look at them at arm's length, but the specificity comes from very small variations in the in this bio patterning. So they're very similar to. Um, to flowers or, um, you know, all sorts of other biological phenomena. And I like, you know, artists try, you know, especially three-dimensional artists, try to encapsulate the idea of something, which is a platonic form, and but it's done with, you know, a particular instance. And I think of it that way. There are, there are forms of antibodies that are broad and potent, and then there are particular instances that we discover is very, very similar to, to flowers or uh, other, other organisms. And, and art is a window toward that that way of thinking, I think. So for your sabbatical, Plato's antibody will be the book you're writing with visual uh, pictures? Yeah, well, I actually, on the sabbatical I planned, I had this fantasy I was going to learn uh, how to use uh, Maya and Blender and all these three-dimensional uh, computer methods for making beautiful models because I would like to communicate with people through that visual about how antibodies work. There are a few people who work in that field, but not enough. And I think these three-dimensional models are now tractable because we have the atomic resolution structures so we could show people exactly how these things work, but we need better visuals. And I'd love to see some, um, some artists get into this field. I think it would have a big impact on public understanding of immunology. For sure. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and for all the conversation and we wish you all the success with your upcoming research and hopefully you will get to do that 
sabbatical at some point instead of having you know to step up and save the world thank you very much we'll look forward to that thank you for having me thank you that brings us to the end of our show don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.immunologypodcast.com to get the show notes including an episode summary and links to all of the interview and roundup papers you can also reach out to us on twitter at at immunopodcast or via email at info at immunologypodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests see you next time